It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 21, and then we're going to be looking at the name El Olam, uh, which is often translated the eternal or everlasting God. <clears throat> uh, I really love this, uh, love this name, and uh, the more I pondered it, the more just profound it continues to get, and I think I've probably said this with all the names, uh, but again, we're, I'm realizing that in you know, 30, 40, 50 minutes or so, uh, we don't have enough time to do <clears throat> in-depth of every single one of these names, and should be told, we could probably spend days looking at each of these names and just pondering the, the glorious reality of who Jesus is in light of all the names of God. So we're just kind of doing an overview. We're just kind of doing a, a summary, if you will, in one sense, and just asking that God would give revelation and insight into the knowledge of who he is. Uh, so just want to jump into this. <clears throat> uh, the word olam in scripture shows up a little over 400 times. And it's often translated like this. It's translated everlasting, eternal, forever, ancient, lasting, long time, constancy, for all time, perpetual, ageless, ageless, time unmeasured, endless in duration, meaning never ending. It's this idea of ongoing. It's this idea of longevity. It's this idea of everlasting. And when you look at this idea of how it's used, uh, what I thought I'd do this morning, just read all 400 times, it shows up in, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would actually be really profitable, truth be told. It would actually be very edifying, I think, to our souls. Uh, but I think it would take more than a half an hour. So I uh, just want to do a summary of this idea of, of Olam, specifically the name El Olam. When you look at this idea of Olam, it's, it's used oftentimes to talk about God himself, his actions, his covenant, his promises, his law, his kingdom. And I, I just want to give a sampling of some of that. So when you look at this idea of covenant, here's a couple passages as it relates to the idea of Olam being in covenant. God is speaking to Abraham in Genesis 17, and God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an Olam covenant, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your seed after you. Or before this point, God was talking to Noah in Genesis 9, and God says, so that the rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it to remember the Olam covenant, that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. So one of the ways it's being used is in the sense of the covenantal promises of God. That when, when God says, I make a covenant, that covenant is not just temporary. It's not just for a season. It's for this idea of long-term. It's this idea of forever. It's this idea of everlasting covenant. Uh, this word, olam, is often used in the sense of even just talking about seasons or time periods of the past. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, it says, remember the Olam days. Remember those ancient days. Consider the years from generation to generation. Ask your father and he will declare to you, your elders, and they will speak to you. So again, it's speaking of that time in the past. Or, or here's another one in Psalm 25, 6. It says, remember, O Yahweh, your compassion and your loving kindness, your, your hesed, for they have been from they for they have been from of old. In other words, that was from ancient times past. 
It's seasons of long ago. So that's one of the ways this term is used is in the sense of things in past. But it can also be used in terms of the future. Uh, for example, in Psalm 33:11, it says that the counsel of Yahweh stands olam. It stands everlasting. It stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. Or, or Psalm 105, which says, For Yahweh is good, his loving kindness, his hesed endures olam, and his faithfulness from generation unto generation. Isn't that a great passage? That, that God's loving kindness, that his hesed literally endures for a long, for forever. So you have this idea of time past. You have this idea of time future. And there's several passages, I think this is fun, where it includes both. Uh, for example, in 1 Chronicles 29.10, it says that David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father, from Olam to Olam, from everlasting to everlasting. And in other words, from, from time past to time future, you, O Lord, are God. Isn't that a great concept? Or, or how about this one in Psalm 103, verse 17 but the loving kindness, the hesed of Yahweh, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Isn't that beautiful? Or what about this from Psalm 41, 13? Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Isn't that beautiful? So there's this idea of, of time. And whether you want to talk about eternity past or eternity future, the word that's used is often olam. In fact, even just that idea of eternity shows up in Ecclesiastes. I love this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Which you understand is more than just a time frame. It's this idea of it's, he's written himself into the fabric of, 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 the, of the world. That, that all of creation is declaring the wonders of who he is that he has set the, the moral conscience upon a man's life and says, hey, you have a deposit. You know what is right from wrong. And eternity has been set upon the heart, this idea of Olam. And again, one of the ways it's primarily used is speaking of just who God is, that it's God himself, that he is Olam. And when we talk about God being Olam, it's this idea that he is eternal with no beginning or ending which bespeaks of the fact that he is always the same, which we've covered before in a variety of ways. But I love this idea that when we say that God is Olam, that he is eternal, that he is everlasting, it bespeaks of the fact that he is immutable. He doesn't change, that, that he is constant, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that, that he is from beginning to the end. And let me just give you a few passages really quick on this idea of God being Olam. Psalm 90 verse 2 before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is God from eternity past to eternity future. He is Olam. Or Psalm 93 verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from Olam. Or Habakkuk 1.12, are you not from Olam everlasting? Oh, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. Hey, hey, are you not, Olam, are you not from eternity past? Are you not the same God? 
Or how about this from the New Testament? Paul picks up this theme in 1 Timothy 1.17, and he says, Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or as the New King James says, Now to the king eternal. What, what is Paul highlighting? It's the olam nature of our God. And he says, do you know who El Olam is? It's Jesus. That, that he is the one from everlasting to everlasting. That, that he is the one who from times past showed up in the flesh and he is El Olam. And he is the king eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Or listen to what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 16. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment, get this, of the eternal God. What, what is Paul saying? It's the Olam one. It's the one from everlasting, the one who is eternal. It is he who has made known to all the Gentiles, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Isn't it neat how Paul picks up that thread as a Jewish rabbi and just says, do you know who our precious Jesus is? He is Olam. And then as you come thundering into the book of Revelation, you hear this theme. Listen to this. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, I am the Almighty. See, he's the one from eternity past to eternity future. He is the beginning and the ending. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Olam and the Olam. Isn't that beautiful? Or as Revelation 21.6 says, Then he, Jesus, said to me, They are done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Or in chapter 22, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is Olam. Now, when you look at the name, oh, oh let me give you this statement. This is really cool. Uh, one, one of the authors on, on some of the names of God said this, not only does this Hebrew name teach us that God's attributes are eternal, but it also assures us that his actions are likewise everlasting. So that was a great statement. So when you look at this name El Olam, which is often, again, translated everlasting God, it shows up in the Old Testament two times as El Olam, and two other times it gives like a hint toward that idea. So for example, in Deuteronomy 33, it doesn't use the name El Olam, but it's still speaking of God's eternal or everlasting attribute. And Deuteronomy 33, verse 27 says, The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he drove out the enemy from before you. Now, in the eternal God, that, that word, uh, kadim, <clears throat> that word, it's a different word than olam, which means eternal, but it speaks of that same idea, that God is eternal, that he is everlasting. And interestingly, the word olam does show up in the passage, that that we are underneath the everlasting arms of our precious God. So that's one way it's used, uh, at least in reference to this idea of God being Elohim. The other one is in Jeremiah 10.10, 10, where Jeremiah says, but Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. 
And he uses the word alam, but he, instead of saying the everlasting God, he uses the word king, but it's, again, it's still speaking of the same concept. Does that make sense? Now, the two times the word El Olam shows up in the Old Testament, uh, the first one is in Genesis 21. So in Genesis 21, <clears throat> uh, it's a beautiful scene. Uh, Isaac has just been born to Abraham and Sarah. And uh, Abraham is, is making his way, and he ends up down in Beersheba, which is the southern portion of ancient Israel. It's right on the, the border of the deep desert of the Negev. And he comes and he, and he meets with this man, and most scholars think he was a Philistine ruler called Abimelech, and he makes a treaty. And I just want to read through the passage because it's really fascinating to me in, in light of this. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 21, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 22. Uh, this is what it says. Now it happened at that time that Abimelech and the commander of his army spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you and all that you do. So now swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the loving kindness that I have shown you, you shall show me and the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, well, I did not know who had done this thing, and you did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them cut a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And Abraham said, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called the name of that place Beersheba, because there the two of them swore an oath. So they cut a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and then the commander of his army arose and returned to the land of the Philistines, and Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God, El Olam. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. It's an interesting story. Uh, you get the scene. Abraham comes down to Beersheba. And sometimes it's, by the way, it's Beersheba, Beersheba, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, but he's down in this land. It's right on, again, it's like the last city before you get into the deep desert. And Abraham had dug a well, and the Philistines kind of took it over, and he made this treaty with Abimelech. And he says, okay, look, I, I, I'm going to give you the sheep, and it's going to be a testimony. This is my well. Leave us alone. And so they make the covenant. And it's interesting that Abraham renames the place Beersheba, which, by the way, is still the name of the city to today. And the name Beersheba means the well of the oath, which is pretty neat. And again, this is a very strategic location because it's the last spot on the map before you get into the deep desert. And so Abraham says, all right, we're going to make an oath. We're going to make a covenant together. And this is going to be my well. This is going to be my area. And I find it fascinating that it says that Abraham planted a tree. Now, we, we kind of gloss over such details, but do you realize that Abraham is a nomad? He's constantly traveling around the land of promise. You know, he spends some time in Hebron, and then he goes down to Beersheba, and then he goes over here, and then he goes over here, and he, he's bouncing around. And it's interesting, if you, if you talk to nomads, even to this day, they would say that planting trees is pointless. 
Why? Because if you plant a tree, do you realize that typically you don't reap the benefit of a tree? It's for later generations. And if you're a nomad and you go from place to place to place, well, if I plant a tree, we may or may not ever come back here. So what's, what's the point of planting trees? So in Israel, there's a whole group of nomads, the Bedouin, and, and they, don't, they don't plant trees. Why? What's the point? Does that make any sense? So I find it interesting that Abraham makes a covenant, and one of the signs of the covenant is he plants a tree. So even though he's a nomad, he realizes that the covenant and the promise is going to continue, not just for him, but for su successive generations. That this thing is going to be ongoing. That, that, yeah, he may or may not have the benefit of the tree, but hey, my seed, which is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, they will have the benefit of the promise and the covenant that I made with Abimelech at the well. So therefore, I'm planting something permanent, a tree. Isn't that interesting? And it's, I find it interesting too that it's not just any tree, it's a teramisk tree. And here's, here's what one Bible dictionary said about this. There are 12 species of the tamarisk found in or near Palestine or Israel. They are found in the thickets of Jordan and the swamps of the Dead Sea and along the coastal plains of the Negev and, and Sinai. One species can go to the height of 20 feet, but it has small leaves and requires a high intake of water and was large enough to provide some shade from the sun. Here's what another dictionary said. The tamarisks usually have bluish-green scale-like leaves that cover the long, slender branches, thus giving little shade. These shrubs are beautiful when clusters of pink blossoms open. And here's what one other author said. That a tamarisk is a relatively long-living tree requiring large amounts of water and producing as many as half a million seeds per plant. And I don't think it's by accident that Abraham plants one of these trees. One, it's, it's one of the few trees that can grow down in that area because <laughs> it's, it's near the desert, right? And yet, isn't it interesting that this is one of those trees that are long-living and it produces an abundance of seed over the course of its lifetime? And if you think about the promises that God made to Abraham, there is some profundity to the fact that this is the kind of tree that Abraham plants as a sign of the promise and the covenant. And in the middle of this whole scene, God, or sorry, Abraham looks at God. Now, I know he made a treaty with Abimelech. I, I get all that, the whole covenant thing. That's beautiful. But God, so I'll say it this way. Abraham takes the location of this covenant promise with Abimelech, renames the place, the well of the oath, and then gives God a, a new name. Or maybe I should say this way, God reveals a new name to Abraham. And Abraham says, oh, Yahweh, you are El Olam. You are the everlasting God. That, that he is the one that endures. He's the one that doesn't change. He's the one that keeps the promises. He's the one, like a tamarisk tree, that endures for a long time and, and gives an abundance of seed. Now, hold that thought. I want to come to the other time that name, El Olam, shows up in the scriptures, which is in Isaiah chapter 40. Oh, by the way, here's, here's what a tamarisk tree looks like. Isn't that cool? So in Isaiah 40, we have the second time the name El Olam shows up. And what I want to do is, instead of reading the entire chapter, 
For the sake of time, I just want to give a few highlights. So I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit. So just, just stick with me. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 3. A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will, be, will see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Jumping down to verse 10. Behold, Lord Yahweh will come with strength and his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Jumping down to verse 12. Think about this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and encompassed the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he take counsel and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and made him know the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and they are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the coastline, coastlands like fine dust. Do you hear what he's saying? Isaiah is saying, who is like our God? Do you realize that he holds the waters of the world in the palm of his hand? In fact, he measures the universe in the span of his hand. In other words, the entire universe can fit in the palm of his hand. And not only that, but who... He can weigh the mountains on a scale. And, and, and all the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God. Who has ever given him wisdom? Like who's going to go up to God and say, let me give you some counsel. Because he is wisdom itself. That he is so great and so above and so beyond. Do, do you hear the tone? Jump me down to verse 18. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, our God, who inhabits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to inhabit. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me, says God, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his vigor and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Do you realize he knows every single star by name? And then look at this, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? El Olam, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens, or sorry, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weary, and to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Though youths grow weary and tired, the choice young men stumble badly, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. My guess is you've heard the last passage. But do you realize it's all in the context that our God is an everlasting God? He is great and mighty and above all things. In fact, he holds the, the waters in the palm of his hand. He knows the stars by name. The nations of earth are like a single droplet of water in a bucket. 
And I love the phrase, do you know that El Olam measures the universe in the span of his hand? In other words, in his hand, think about how crazy this is. In God's palm, to use a human picture, in the palm of God's hand, he holds the entirety of the universe. Have you ever pondered the reality of that? I remember being in college and I took an astronomy course by uh, our college professor was an engineer on, a, on like he wasn't on Apollo 13, but when the Apollo 13 thing went crazy, he was one of the engineers in NASA trying to help figure all those things out. And uh, he had these great, he's this old guy, he had these great stories. And, and we were walking through this astronomy class and just talking about how big the universe is and, and how, you know, the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. And, and I was just captivated. And I was just like, God is so amazing. God is just and I don't know if you've ever studied the whole spans of the universe thing, but it starts to boggle your mind. Like it becomes so weird. So let me give you an example. Listen to this quote uh, from John Martin. He's a, he's a commentator. And then I'll talk about universe. But just think about how cool this is. God is such a great creator that all the waters of the globe were held as it were in his hand. Figuratively, he can measure the vast starry universe with the breadth of his hand. And all of the earth's dust could be put in a basket of his. And the mountains and the hills, though vast, are so small compared with him that he, figuratively speaking, could weigh them all on small scales. Though the immensity of creation is awe-inspiring, no one on earth is God's equal. Isn't that a great statement? When you ponder the universe, think, think about this. When you, and I know, I know when you go out at night and see the starry universe, it, we are, we, because of all the light pollution, like we don't get to see much. I, I, I get that. I don't know if you've ever gone camping and you actually like get to see part of the Milky Way galaxy and you're like, whoa, that is gorgeous. Could you imagine being like Abraham and actually seeing the brilliancy of the night sky? I remember being a little kid getting to go to the planetarium with the school and they were doing one of those like light things in, in what are they? like the little theaters that they have. And they're like, now this is what you get to see, right? Because of all that light pollution. But if somehow we could turn all the lights off, this is what you could see. And they push the button, whatever it is. And suddenly the brilliancy of the sky. And it's just, it is so awe-inspiring. I mean, it's breathtaking to, to look. I don't know if you've, ever seen, if you've ever seen the Milky Way while camping, you know, out in some little place. It is, it is so breathtaking to behold. And yet that is even pales in comparison to what Abraham would have been able to see back in the ancient days. But ponder this. The speed of light, which is the fastest thing that we know, travels at 160,000 miles a second. That's faster than I can drive. Okay, I mean, that's like, that's like super fast. Okay? And think about this. One light year you would travel six trillion miles in one year, traveling at the speed of light. Six trillion miles, which I don't, even, I don't think we can even wrap our minds around that number, okay? But, but just ponder this. At the speed of light, you can travel around the earth seven times in one second. I, I remember flying down to New Zealand to go speak, and it was over Thanksgiving, and it like took, what was it, like 20 hours? Something. I mean, it's like some... 16 hours, some ridiculous amount. I'm like, 
holy cow. Could you imagine? Just hop on a speed of light thing. You could be there in like a nanosecond. I mean, just, you would just, do you know how great that would be? That'd be amazing. Invent this, okay? Traveling at the speed of light, it takes 1.3 seconds to go from the moon to earth. Or from the sun, or to Mars, it's 4.36 minutes to Mars. From the sun, it takes eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to earth. Now, from the sun to Pluto, it takes five hours and 40 minutes. Okay, that's, I know Pluto is debated because it's no longer a planet. I don't know who decided that. That's ridiculous. So I'm going to call it a planet. So the furthest reaches of our solar system, it only takes five hours for light to travel. That's in our, just our solar system, five hours. So let's expand it. The nearest closest star, which is supposedly Proxima Centurii, I'm not saying these correctly, okay, but it takes 4.3 light years to get to our closest neighboring star. And again, every year it's 6 trillion miles. So just the nearest star in the Milky Way galaxy would take four years. And to get to the North Star, Polaris, from, from Earth, it would take 320 light years just, just to get to the North Star. Now, if you go to the Milky Way galaxy, we're on the sort of the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. To get to the center of the Milky Way galaxy, it would take 26,000 light years to get to the center of our galaxy. And it is estimated that the Milky Way galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. So ponder this. If... Adam, the moment God created Adam, he got in a spaceship traveling at the speed of light. Do you realize that he would still only be less than a quarter of the way to the center of the Milky Way galaxy? And that's just one galaxy. And do you, oh, by the way, our, our galaxy is estimated to have between one and 400 billion stars. Are you starting to see the immensity of this thing? Now, that's just one galaxy. Now, if you want to take another step further out, the next closest neighboring galaxy, Andromeda, it would take 2.5 million light years to get to the closest galaxy. And in the noble universe, supposedly, there's between 1 and 200 billion galaxies. And just to get to the nearest one to us, it still takes 2.5 million light years. And so, supposedly, we are roughly 46.5 billion light years from the edge of the observable universe. Hark. <laughs> now ponder this. All of that fits in the palm of his hand. That he can measure it all. He knows every star. He knows all of the, the galaxies by name. And they all fit in the palm of his hand. Do you know how mind-boggling that is? So, so if you come back into this idea of, of Genesis, here, here's Abraham and he says, God, you are an everlasting God. You keep your promises. You don't change. And I understand the revelation of the universe thing wasn't until Isaiah, but, but if, if, I could, if I can 
put it back into Abraham's language. Could you imagine Abraham says, God, I trust you. That, that I know who you are and you are worthy to be praised. And, and, and yet, everything I see in the starry sky, I know that, that you are in control of it. That you know them all by name. That the 100 to, what, two to 400 billion stars just in our galaxy, God knows every single one of them by name. And yet that's just one galaxy of the one to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. And he knows them all by name. And God is so immense and so grand and so marvelous, he holds it all in the span of his hand. He is El Olam. He spoke it all with just a word. He is the creator of all things. The king of the universe. The Lord of heaven and earth. So listen to this again. Isaiah 40 verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? El Olam, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. Don't you think if we actually knew how immense and big and unchanging God is, don't you think we could trust him? Don't you think that he could actually handle your problems? Because my guess is your problems are smaller than the size of the universe. I'm just presuming. I mean, if the nations are like a drop in the bucket, then what are your problems? What is your addiction? What is your challenges to him? They're just winky-dink, aren't they? So let me just give you, again, we could just go on forever on this idea. This is so beautiful. But let me just give you three quick reminders or ideas with this idea of God being El Olam. Number one, though he holds the universe in the palm of his hand, though he can measure the waters, though he can weigh the mountains and all the dust of the earth, do you realize that he is not distant? Because it'd be easy for us to, to, to think about, here's God who's El Olam, and we're like, well, if, if, if the universe is, is as expansive as it is, and, and this is as massive as it is, and, and he'll, he holds it all in the palm of his hand, it, it can feel like he's distant. But do you realize he can hold the universe in the palm of his hand, and yet he knows when a sparrow falls to the earth? And he knows the number of hairs on your head. And though he is big and though he is grand and though he holds the universe in the span or measures the universe in the span of his hand, he knows you intimately. He desires relationship. That, that he, is, he is intimately acquainted with where you're at. So you must remember he is not distant. He is close, intimate, and relational. In fact, the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand came to earth and died for you and I. He is the everlasting God. From everlasting to everlasting, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our precious Jesus. Number two, it's not just that he's distant, but do you realize that you can trust him always and in everything? I don't think it's by accident that Abraham called God the El Olam, the everlasting God, in chapter 21. Because at the end of chapter 21, Abraham is overwhelmed by the fact that he can trust his God. And wow, he's so good. And wow, you're so rich. And man, this is so incredible. And then in chapter two, God says, all right, give me your son. And the test of giving up Isaac and sacrificing Isaac on the mountain of the Lord and seeing God as the provision flows out of the fact that God 
is Elolam. Does that make sense? And here's Abraham saying, wow, God, you are so good. And wow, you're so high and lifted up. And you hold all things in the palm of your hand. And God says, I am. Will you trust me? Will you give me your son, your beloved son, Isaac? And will you offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain? And I will show you. And what does Abraham do? Okay. I trust you. Why? Because Abraham knows that God is Elohim. And if we begin to recognize that God is Elohim, that, that, that he is high and lifted up, that he is everlasting, that he's immutable, in other words, he's, he's unchanging, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then you can trust and walk by faith always and in all things. It does not matter your circumstance. It does not matter your trial. It does not matter your situation. He is Elohim, and we can trust him always and in all things. And number, number three, do you realize that if he is Elohim, it is a reminder that he and his promises are guaranteed. That he does not change. That when he makes a covenant, it's guaranteed. When he makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. That he and his promises are guaranteed. They're sure. And just in closing, let me just give you two passages. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, <clears throat> verse 17 through 20. It says, In the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. See, he does not change. He granted it with an oath, or sorry, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed, and one which enters within the veil, where a forerunner has entered for us, Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you realize the writer of Hebrews says, because we know that our God is unchanging, and because that unchanging God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, that becomes an anchor of hope for your soul. That, that you can stand steadfast. Why? Because you know the nature of your God and the fact that your God, who cannot lie and cannot change, has promised. And then he has given us himself. Isn't that phenomenal? And I quote this all the time, but 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, seeing that his divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you realize that the one who is El Olam actually wants to share his nature with you? He wants to share his life with you. He's inviting you into relationship and intimacy. And he has given you exceedingly great and precious promises. Would you hold fast to that? No matter what you're facing today, would you remember that God can measure the universe in the palm of his hand? And yet, though he is so big and though he is so massive, you can trust him. Why? Because he knows you intimately. He is good, folks. He is from everlasting to everlasting. It's beautiful, isn't it? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we love you and just thank you for the fact that you do not change. 
that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you are from of old, but you are into eternity future. That you are not only just unchanging, but but Lord, you, you are so big and so grand and so high and lifted up that you are the king of the universe, the creator of all things. And not only can you hold the universe in the palm of your hand, you spoke all of it by just the word of your mouth. Lord, if you can create the universe with a single word, if you can hold the universe and measure it out in the span of your hand, and yet tell us that you know intimately the number of hairs on our head and the fact that you see the sparrow falls to the ground, Lord, could, could, you, could you press us to a greater level of trust and faith in you? That, that we would know that you can handle our problems, that, that you can handle any situation, and that no matter what you walk us through, even though it may be a, a valley of a shadow of death, even like Abraham, when you say, can I have your son? that we can still put our hope and our trust in you. Lord, press that reality deep into our hearts and our minds. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just esteem you as El Olam. We wouldn't just say, "Woo, aren't you great? Aren't you the everlasting one? But Lord, that we would actually live in accordance with that reality. That like Abraham, we just say, Yes, Lord, you are worthy. I can trust you always and in everything. Love you, Jesus. Just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.